Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for coming to the third annual BP's Awards. Very exciting. Yes, at the lovely Kodak Theater. Oh my, yes, we absolutely. We got to change the name back yeah. for us. <laughs> it turns out we have way more pull than we thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is our third year doing this, and uh, it's it's arguable how yeah. popular these are. The ratings keep going up every year. Yeah. it's We and, got a... Uh, 20 chair. Absolutely. No question about it. Faye Dunaway and network. Um, so, so we're, you know, this is a, so why, look, I don't know if people know how awards work, award shows work. Look, this pure, pure merit in every case. <laughs> no, well, that's not even what I'm t- want to talk about. So this is, you're listening to this in 2016, but we're not talking about movies that came out in 2016. We're talking about right. the movies that came out yeah. in 2015. Yep. So, David, at, just looking back on the year, what do you think about 2015 as a movie year? Well, I mean, these things, uh, I often feel a little bit stupid talking about this because these things are kind of arbitrary. Like, it's yeah. not like, it's not like Hollywood or mo- the movies got together and said, guys, let's really put our nose to the grindstone and have a good year. Yeah. You know, um, it's yeah, all kind of phoned in, in the last way. few years. Yeah. yeah. But I do think 2015 was an out of sight, uh, year for movies. It's, it's, um, in making my, you know, I had to vote for these, these BPs. Um, it was since we've started doing the BPs, it was certainly the toughest year on record to pick, to pick favorites yeah. because there were so many great movies. Yeah. Um, and I will say that, you know, as the person that, that tabulated, a lot of these votes this year, more than any other, uh, or more than the last two, I guess, um, there were, there were ties. There were very close ties as opposed to in the past. It's okay. Here's the clear winner. Here's the clear winner. Um, you know, the, the, the really high quality movies were very, or performances or screenplays were very obvious. Whereas this time it was not uncommon for it to be like a three way horse race, and it coming down to the winner wins by one vote. Yeah. Um, and that's, and I think that's, indi- I think that speaks to the kind of year it is. Um, that just, there are so many people who it's like, well, uh, best actor. It's like, I like this guy, but it, I could easily like this guy where, um, you could clear out. I feel like maybe I'm not sure if I, if I stand by this completely, you could clear out my top 10 and then, then my my eleven through twenty gets bumped up to top ten. Still not bad. Uh-huh. Do you know? Like, do you know oh, yeah. what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are movies that will be winning awards tonight that are aren't even in my top twenty, and I yeah. still have no problem with. Yeah, that that movie deserves that award. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's and it's interesting because you have this was a year where a lot of big stars made big movies a lot of uh and and you know would go on to be nominated for oscars and quite possibly win uh you had a lot of notable directors putting out really great movies um and yeah and it's and it's interesting because last year when we were reflecting on 2014 we talked about the the general climate uh of of american culture and the impact that that seemed to have on movies or maybe the movies were anticipating because of course it takes you know something a movie coming out two months after a tragedy they weren't incorporating the tragedy into that right um so there's a lot of that in 2014 2015 i'm not i didn't see a whole lot of that um i just see almost like a really great album. Now, admittedly, that's one person putting it all together, but a really great album where there doesn't seem to be a consistent tone through the album, but every single song is great. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not, they may not uh, flow from one to the other. I, like, for example, I think in terms of, uh, 
Look, I'll think in terms of Tom Waits. This is 2015 was Rain Dogs. Okay. Each song off, off in a different genre, so it's hard to go from one to the other, but each song is pretty much a winner, as opposed to something right. like a, Fra- a Frank's Wild Years or an Alice, where it's very much a sim- of the same tone. My, the example I would have gone with would have been, uh, this year was Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Sure. It's a huge number of great movies, but yeah, yeah. they don't have any uh, yeah. rhyme or reason to, uh, you know, there's nothing, nothing linking them in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. On one side you have Mad Max, on the, on the other you have something like Brooklyn. They're not similar films, yeah. but they're both wonderful. And, and I think even... You know, the, this, this other show, this, I don't know if people have heard of it, the, uh, the Oscars, I don't That's, know. Yeah, that seems to be the uh, colloquial way of referring to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just, look, the BPs are what people tune into, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, this year you have such an odd assortment of Best Picture nominees, and a, a movie like Mad Max sweeping the nominations now whether by the time we don't know the winners yet but it might not win any of those Mm -hmm. but mad max is not your standard oscar movie it's not your standard prestige movie it's the kind of movie that maybe critics can get behind um but i don't know it's it's almost like the quality and obviously i mean there's there's talk about you know oscar so white and that sort of thing so there is that as well but as far as just general quality it's almost as though in circles where quality, where high quality and challenging art is not necessarily a priority all the time, uh-huh. it's almost like it can't be denied. It's so powerful it can't be denied. But at the same time, there there were big snubs at the Oscars that I like to think that we we took care of that here at the BPs. Well, um, I think that's the perfect uh, point at which we should get into it. Shall, shall we? we? Our first presenter is a new addition to the Battleship Retention family, so new that he's still technically on his trial period. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he knows that. Please welcome via satellite Alexander Miller. Thank you very much, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be here this evening presenting the BP Award for Best Supporting Actress. And this year's nominees are Kate Winslet and Steve Jobs, Alicia Vikander and Ex Machina, Tessa Thompson and Creed, Maya Taylor and Tangerine, and Jennifer Jason Lee for The Hateful Eight. And this year's winner for Best Supporting Actress is Jennifer Jason Lee for The Hateful Eight. Quentin Tarantino has written some great roles for women over the years. After all, what would kill Bill be without Daryl Hannah and Uma Thurman? While The Hateful Eight is a very male-dominant movie, Lee's unkempt ferocity is unforgettable. Though she is in the presence of greatness, she completely steals the show as the vicious and unforgiving Daisy Domergue. Quentin Tarantino's latest film is long, brutal, unrelenting, incredibly violent, and very mean-spirited, which is exactly why I loved it. While I can say all of these years' nominees were terrific, Lee's performance was, in my mind, one of the best, and I'm proud to say that she was my vote for this year's Best Supporting Actress Award. After all, who needs an Oscar when you've been recognized by the BPs? Thanks, Alex. And now to present our next award, one of our most beloved writers, Rita Cannon. Thanks, guys. I'm here to present the award for Best Cinematography. The nominees are Edward Lockman for Carol, Robert Richardson for The Hateful Eight, John Seal for Mad Max Fury Road, Emmanuel Lubezki for The Revenant, and Roger Deakins for Sicario. And the winner is Edward Lockman for Carol. Lockman shot this film on 16mm, which gives it a weight and a textural detail that puts you right in the middle of the world these characters live in. It really feels like you can reach out and touch the clothes they're wearing, the rooms they live in, and the objects they interact with. The images Lockman creates feel less like an homage to Hollywood films of that era and more like vintage photojournalism that just happens to have super gorgeous people as its subject. He also composes his shots in really effective ways. We frequently see a lot of the characters, but especially Carol and Therese, through things, whether it's a car window or a door frame or rain or snow. They're visually slightly obscured a lot of the time, which communicates a lot about the position these women are in, where they're trying to step outside of their respective situations so they can get closer to each other. It's a really beautiful film, and the cinematography is as emotionally resonant as it is gorgeous to look at. Congratulations, Edward Lockman, on your BP award. You absolutely deserve it. Thank you. You're an inspiration, Rita. And now from across the pond, 
please welcome our London correspondent, Daryl Tufts. This year in animation brought a variety of different things. The conflicting personalities of our emotions, a misbehaved but well-meaning sheep, the nostalgic return of a childhood classic, and, well, puppet sex. Some say that cinema serves as the ultimate tool by which to view our reality, while at the same time being withdrawn from reality. We lose our bodies only for the mind to take over. You might say that you are aware of the presence of cinema, while the cinema is not aware of the presence of you. Because of this, films hold a deep and strong relationship to dreams, entire worlds created purely by the human mind, worlds in which we as an audience are mindfully invited to study, explore and digest. None of this is truer than for the animated film. These are works that not only use the foundations of reality to build a world, but construct entire worlds of their own right, which are then projected before us, ready-made for discovery and exploration. While animated films can be wondrous for children, they are also often powerful for adults. Animation is sometimes pushed aside, unfairly labelled as a cinema for young people, but animation can do so much more. It allows us to uncover reality in an abstract way. It might even be said that animation is a concrete embodiment of abstract ideas, meaning that, through animation, we are fundamentally exploring the very minds of its creators. Now, let's take a look at the nominations for Best Animated Film. The nominations are Anomalisa, directed by Charlie Kaufman Inside Out, directed by Pete Docter The Peanuts Movie, directed by Steve Martino Sean the Sheep Movie, directed by Mark Burton and Richard Starzak When Marnie Was There Directed by Hiroma Shoyona Bayasi And the winner is Inside Out Now do you see where I was going with the whole exploring the mind talk? Inside Out is a film motivated by inner conflicts So often the films focus on the good and the bad The dark and the light The old left hand right hand as Harry Powell would say But In Inside Out, there are no bad guys, there is no evil, though I'm pretty sure there are a few left hands, but that's beside the point. Inside Out steers well away from what certain people might expect from an animated film. We do not reach its end learning how joy saves the day, learning how in order to do well you need to be happy, or learning that sadness is something that needs to be suppressed at all costs. Instead, we learn of the importance of sadness our need to cry, our need to be broken, and our need for the support of other people. Inside Out is an honest and vulnerable depiction of the mind, not just for the young Riley as she moves through transition, but for everyone. The mind is a vulnerable thing, capable of both extreme joys and deep depressions. These conflicting emotions might be hard to experience and complex to overcome, but hey, no one ever said being a human being was easy. None of us would survive in this world without the capability for sadness, for it is through sadness and hardships that vulnerable emotions and relationships can develop between people. Inside Out is a film that shows us this, while still remaining to be fun and entertaining, no matter how old you are. Thank you. Charming as ever, Daryl. Our next presenter is the co-host of the Classic Horror Cast. Please welcome Kyle Anderson. Thanks, guys. I'm here to present the award to something that far too frequently is overlooked by most award shows, but it wouldn't be a year without it. Scores. 2015 was a banner year for scores, and we had some of the best of all time. 5 to 2. 16 to 3. 101 to 89. 24 to... What's that? Oh, it's... Really? Uh, I've just been informed that uh, we're talking about musical scores, as in the music that goes underneath the movie. Uh, all right. Um, sure. Are you sure? Really? I really had it on 24 to 10 this year. All right. The nominees for best musical score are Carter Burwell for Carol. 
Ennio Morricone for The Hateful Eight. Rich Vreeland for It Follows. Junkie XL for Mad Max Fury Road. John Williams for Star Wars The Force Awakens. And the winner is Ennio Morricone for The Hateful Eight. Uh, Ennio Morricone couldn't be here because he is a very famous and old man, um, but uh, I will accept the award on his behalf. Uh, few are the scores that let the audience know immediately what kind of movie they're in for. But Morricone's for The Hateful Eight does exactly that. Quentin Tarantino had used many of Morricone's pieces of spaghetti western music for his films, but it's very fitting that the composer's first original score for QT should harken back to John Carpenter's The Thing far more than any of the westerns. The Hateful Eight's music is dark and foreboding and haunting and playful and riotous, and it perfectly sums up the whodunit horror show teeming with sociopolitical commentary. If you had any illusions this was going to be a happy movie, Morricone dashes those thoughts like a swift punch to the nose. It's a damn good score. Go listen to it. Back to you guys. Way to go, Kyle. Now to present a new award via satellite... Here's Craig Schrader. Thanks, guys. Best Costumes is a great category in this year's BPs. All of the films nominated are set in worlds with distinct styles and motifs. A western, a post-apocalyptic wasteland, a fairy tale that's been told the world over, a Victorian period piece, and a drama set in a fully realized version of 1950s America. All of these films could fit neatly into a single, recognizable genre. And though all of them tread familiar waters, existing within an easily digestible setting or period, the costumes in each of these films, as well as many other elements, as all of the nominees in this category are fantastic, make them stand out as unique, postmodern visions of a beautiful world that only the movies could create. Here are the nominees for Best Costumes. Sandy Powell for Carol. Sandy Powell again for Cinderella. Kate Hawley for Crimson Peak. Courtney Hoffman for The Hateful Eight, and Jenny Beaven for Mad Max Fury Road. And the winner is Kate Hawley for Crimson Peak. Any of these nominations could have taken it. In Mad Max, each character came with an unspoken history thanks to the costumes. Courtney Hoffman's work in The Hateful Eight is so layered and detailed to each character's quirks and affectations. This really was a great category. But for me and many others in the BP voting body, Crimson Peak was the clear winner. Guillermo del Toro's gothic Victorian romance, featuring ghosts, is a beautiful, meticulously composed film, and Kate Hawley's costumes accentuate every stylistic flourish and every theme. Each character has their own palette and design that tells the film's story before a word is spoken. 
Mia Wasikowska's Edith is adorned in simple clothes, all in light shades, matching the continuous glow that Del Toro and cinematographer Dan Lauston shoot her in. Tom Hiddleston's Thomas Sharp is dressed in dark shades with pops of color, the outlier whose wardrobe is as dynamic as his intentions. And Jessica Chastain, who gives one of the best performances of her career, her character Lucille is always dressed in elaborate gowns that seem less like they were crafted and more like they were harvested from the walls of the mansion at Crimson Peak. All of these nominees are great. And for me, it really was a tough choice between Crimson Peak and Jenny Beaven's work and Mad Max Fury Road. Each film could be put on mute and the costumes would tell a story just as well as any dialogue. But ultimately, Kate Holly's costumes not only tell a story, but there were no costumes in 2015 that complemented and expounded on the director's vision quite like the costumes in Crimson Peak. So congrats, Kate Holly and Crimson Peak, winner of the BP for Best Costumes. Wear it proudly. Back to you guys. Thank you, Craig. And now you know him, you tolerate him. Please welcome the co-host of Hey Watch This, Paul Goebel. Hello. Before I begin, I'd like to announce that tonight I no longer want to be known as Paul Goebel, the king of TV. I'd like to be known as Kaleem Salad Mohammed Khalad, the king of TV. I'm Apache and I am president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. And to every woman who gave birth to every taxpayer and citizen of this nation, we have fought for everybody else's equal rights. We live in a time where we have a man sending us to a war for fictitious reasons. Shame on you. And anytime you got the Pope and the Dixie Chicks against you, your time is up. Thank you very much. <sighs> We're very sorry about that, everybody. Truly. But let's try to get back on track. Uh, can we get a different presenter out here? Okay, uh, Josh, good. Uh, our next presenter is one of our writers. Uh, please welcome Josh Long. Uh, uh, oh, um, uh, hi, hi, uh, hi, everyone. Uh, oh, it's, bright, it's bright lights up here. Um, you, uh, th thank you for having me here. Uh, glad that I was sitting close by. Uh, I guess that just worked out. Um, so I'm here I, I guess now to present the award for best original screenplay uh, the nominees were Alex Garland Ex Machina, Quentin Tarantino The Hateful Eight Pete Doctor, Meg LaFauve and Josh Cooley Inside Out did I say that? I, that sounds right uh, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig for Mistress America and Tom McCarthy and Josh Singer for Spotlight and the award goes to Quentin Tarantino, The Hateful Eight. Uh, I, I guess it's lucky that I did see all these movies this year. That um, ended up being a good coincidence. Um, uh, strong, strong nominees here. Um, but I think it's always, we're always kind of excited to see what Tarantino has to do. Or uh, has to to bring to the table, and I think uh, Hateful Eight was really brought a lot of his signature signature things to it. A lot of his uh, quick back and forth dialogue, some uh, clever character developments, and uh, a real sense of tension. and And uh, I feel like the 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 mystery of what's going on plays up really well in that in that film. Um, I think those are some of the strongest points in it uh created some great characters too i think uh tim roth's character in, in particular was one that i really loved uh had a lot of fun with that one um and then i'm glad someone told me ahead of time about all the connections to the thing because i might not have made them myself but now knowing them i think that made uh, watching the film even more enjoyable um in terms of the other candidates this year um like i said some really great ones um ex machina was a very thoughtful very uh some some good hard sci-fi which it's fun to see now and again um i'm a huge Noah baumbach fan i enjoyed mistress america but not uh not as much as some of his recent films but there were some some highlights still and uh spotlight of course we all we all love spotlight we all have a a nice warm place in our hearts for spotlight um 
I think that's all I have to say. Do I, do I just leave and oh, okay. All right. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for filling in, Josh. I knew we'd keep you around for a reason. Now, our next presenter is the host of the I Do Movies Badly podcast. Via satellite from New York, please welcome the very tall Jim Rohner. Thanks, David and Tyler, for the introduction, and thanks for inviting me back as a BP presenter for the second year in a row, uh, despite the whole fiasco last year with the cat and the pants and... You know, let's just get into it, shall we? So uh, I am, of course, presenting the nominations for Best Documentary, and the nominees are Amy, directed by Asif Kapadia, Cobain, Montage of Heck, directed by Brett Morgan, Listen to Me, Marlon, directed by Stephen Riley, The Look of Silence, directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, and The Nightmare, directed by Rodney Asher. And the winner is... The Look of Silence, directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. Uh, Just like Oppenheimer's last film, uh, The Act of Killing, The Look of Silence uh, continues to follow the aftermath and the consequences of the Indonesian genocide decades ago, but shifts the focus from the the perpetrators to a victim of it. In this one, it is a man named Adi, whose brother was killed by some of the uh, the tyrants who were uh, justifying their actions by doing uh, the, the Lord's work and the government's work by killing communists. Um, and the look of silence, as the title implies, really gets its power uh, through um, its juxtaposition or its uh, comparing or contrasting between um, answers and, as it says, the, the silence that comes from it. Not only in the sense of Adi, who has to sort of sit there uh, in many parts of the film and watch videos of uh, the men who were most directly responsible for the murder of his brother, kind of gleefully explaining um, how they would go about killing uh, these so-called communists, but also when he actually confronts some of these people who are directly responsible, uh, we see sort of how how hollow their justifications are and how when confronted with the personification and and the the consequences of their misdeeds, um, how unable they are to to really actually search inside themselves and justify the horrible things that they've done. And it's it's uh, it's such a shame and, and it's so powerful to sort of watch uh, how, how we see how Adi and, and, and any of his family and the sympathizers had to keep quiet for so long because they are still living under the thumb and under the threat of the people who perpetrated this initial attack. Uh, but Joshua Oppenheimer does a great job by also, despite these overwhelming atrocities and, and just seemingly in, inescapable suffering, also opens up the door for hope, um, if not on a national scale, then at least maybe on a personal and individual scale. Um, so it's The Act of Science is a great film, not just for um, continuing to shed light on, on a, just a, an absolutely terrible deed, uh, or deeds, I should say, from decades ago, but also by um, injecting a, a sense of, of, of hope and redemption into an otherwise um, just suffocating story. So it's, it's a great film. I highly recommend anyone go see it if they haven't yet. Um, and congratulations to, uh, to Joshua Oppenheimer on his uh, BP win in 2016. <laughs> How's the weather up there, Jim? Our next presenter, please welcome the always charismatic Scott Nye. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the nominees for Best Supporting Actor are Benicio Del Toro, Sicario, Tom Hardy, The Revenant, Oscar Isaac, Ex Machina, Mark Ruffalo, Spotlight, and Sylvester Stallone for Creed. And the winner is Sylvester Stallone. You know, a lot of people have said that Stallone is just riding the wave of uh, goodwill and playing Rocky Balboa once again, but... I think this is uh, one of the best performances of the year simply because it is everything he's always given to the the character. He is raw and vulnerable and very open, but uh, a very honest portrayal overall and a character that has definitely worn over the years and a performance that would work regardless of whether or not we've seen him throughout the decades. So congratulations, Sylvester Stallone, on winning this year's BP for Best Supporting Actor. Thanks for putting in the absolute minimum effort, Scott. Our next presenter is a longtime writer for Battleship Pretension. Via satellite, please welcome Sarah Brinks. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here at the third annual BP ceremony. I have the distinct pleasure this year of presenting the BP Award for Best Editing. And the nominees are Alfonso Goncavales for Carol, Fred Raskin for The Hateful Eight, Margaret Sixel for Mad Max Fury Road, Stephen Mirioni for The Revenant, and Elliot Graham for Steve Jobs. 
And the winner is Margaret Sixill for Mad Max Fury Road. Join me, war boys, as we witness her receiving her award. <laughs> Just a, a little Mad Max humor there. Anyone who has seen Mad Max Fury Road knows that it is an action-packed, in-your-face, high-octane, dystopian story of feminism. While not really a film that worked for me personally, it is a film with some of the year's most impressive action sequences. The editing of Mad Max Fury Road is a big part of what made the film such a palpable experience for its audience. The editing manages to propel the scenes forward while skillfully keeping you grounded so you understand what is happening, which is pretty impressive given how much happens on the screen at one time. Director George Miller insisted that the focus of the scene be in the center of the frame so that Sixel and her editing team could make quick cuts and the eye wouldn't have to search the frame for the focus. Mad Max Fury Road is the first film that Sixel has edited since Happy Feet in 2006, so when George Miller was asked why he had his wife, who had never edited an action film, to edit his film, his answer was simple. He said, if he asked the usual kind of guys, it would look like every other action film we see. Sixel and her team managed to make Mad Max Fury Road a standout film of 2015 and should be proud of their impressive editing work and their BP. Congratulations, Margaret. We here at the BP fleet hope that this shiny new award looks great on your shelf while you wait to see if your Oscar nomination turns into a win. Back to you, Tyler and David. Sarah! Our next presenter is beloved by our fans and, if we're being honest, probably our favorite of our contributors. More or less. Depends on the day. Uh, please welcome West Anthony. If, as William S. Burroughs once observed, language is a virus from outer space, then these next five BP nominees must indeed be aliens from a distant galaxy who will surely kill us all with their brilliant words. And even in the face of the certain obliteration of humanity at the scaly hands of our pathogen-spewing extraterrestrial overlords, I'm certain we can all agree that with screenplays like these, the utter decimation of civilization as we know it will be totes worth it. Here now are the nominees for Best Adapted. Screenplay, sorry, somebody fixed that teleprompter. Nick Hornby for Brooklyn, based on the novel by Colm Tobin. Phyllis Nage for Carol, based on the novel The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith. Drew Goddard for The Martian, based on the novel by Andy Weir. Emma Donahue for Room, based on her novel. Aaron Sorkin for Steve Jobs, based on the biography by Walter Isaacson. And the BP goes to Aaron Sorkin for Steve Jobs. This award is well-deserved because unlike the other four nominees that were based on novels loaded with dialogue and character development and whatnot, Isaacson's biography contained very little of these things, leaving a great many blanks for Sorkin to fill in, which he did with his customary thick, chewy slabs of Sorkinian dialogue. Well, that's all for me, so be strong, be safe, and most of all, BP! Oh, that doesn't sound right. Thanks, Wes. You're way better than these other assholes. Our next presenter is a two-time guest of the podcast and the director of the little-to-never-seen independent film The Backseat. To present Best Stunts, please welcome, via satellite, Ryan O'Leary. Stunts. What a year for the stunted. The following BPS Ward nominees all kept us on the edges of our seats, but only one knocked a majority of the voting body off that edge. The nominees for best stunts in a motion picture are Mad Max Furry Road, Mission Impossible Ragu Nation, The Revenant Spy, Star Wars The Force is Awake. All right, and the uh, winner of the BPS, sorry, envelopes very hard to open. Um, anyway, the winner of the BPS Award of Merit, Honor, and All That Dignity goes to Mad Max Fury Road. I cannot think of a movie more deserving of this title. The stunts in this film made me legitimately think that several of the actors were going to die, or at least a cameraman or someone that no one gives a shit about. It added a painstaking sense of realism to an unreal world and set the bar for what stunts could and should be. Well done, Mad Max. Back to you, Ty Guy and Davey B. Attaboy, Ryan. And now, here to sing a song in remembrance of those we've lost, 
our blogger and Sundance correspondent, Matt Warren. Thank you. Beautiful man, just beautiful. And now to present the Bruce McGill and the Insider Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes, here's Rudy Obias. Hello, everyone. My name is Rudy Obias from Mental Floss, and I'm here to present this year's Bruce McGill in the Insider Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes. While it's hard to leave an impact on an audience with under 15 minutes of screen time, the following nominees prove that a little goes a long way. And the nominees are Michael Sarah in Entertainment, Sam Elliott in Grandma, Jane Fonda in Youth, Neil Huff in Spotlight, 
and James Ranson in Tangerine. And the award goes to Neil Huff as Phil Saviano in Spotlight. Actor Neil Huff brings the magnitude of decades of sexual abuse to light in Spotlight and also serves as the emotional impact of trauma in one of the most powerful films of 2015. I'm very proud to present this year's Bruce McGill in the Insider Award for performances under 15 minutes to Neil Huff. And now, via satellite, here's Neil Huff. I just wanted to thank everybody who voted for me for the Bruce McGill Award. Um, I am truly just blown away that uh, the award exists and that uh, the group of people you've assembled as nominees to be grouped with them is uh, just a, a huge, huge honor. Um, I have such respect for Jane Fonda, James Ransone, Michael Cera, and Sam Elliott. I've been floored by their work for years and um, as, as is the case with uh, Bruce McGill um, I love this it's called the Bruce McGill Award he's such a um, I guess I would say that the thing that Bruce McGill is is indelible he, um, he really somehow burns into your memory um, you know, I just think back to Animal House and The Insider and Lincoln. He's just, there's something about his work that draws such clean, clear, deep lines that you never forget it. So uh, to just be in the same conversation as these names, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful. Um, I think all of this starts with really great writing. So I'm immensely indebted to Tom McCarthy and Josh Singer for writing such an incredible script. And, and really, um, ultimately, this all comes down to Phil Saviano, the man I play. I think the reason that that main scene that I have in Spotlight, uh, where I come into um, the office, the Spotlight offices, with the box of files, um, has made such an impact with so many people, is because you really get a sense that it's just the tip of the iceberg. And I've kind of reflected since the role... Um, has come out that in a way that's what you should do with every scene with every character it's really made me think that really one of the great strengths of that scene is just you just get such a sense of how much else is going on in this man's life and that really should be the case pretty much with everything else that you do and lastly I'd just like to say that this sense that Phil Saviano's story in in Spotlight is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, that really is, for me, the great strength of the film, that you get such a sense that there are so many more stories, and that is indeed the case with all of the survivors of clergy sex abuse. Spotlight uncovered several, and there are several more, and I hope that more and more people have the courage to uh, come out with them and Maybe if there are enough voices crying out that things will actually change with respect to how uh, the church manages such tragedy. So thank you very much for honoring me with this. All right. That was very exciting. Thank you very much, Rudy. And thank you, Neil Huff. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, so for our next award, uh, we welcome in one of our favorite guests, Kristen Sales. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm going to present the award for Best Actor, and the nominees are Matt Damon in The Martian, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, Michael Fassbender in Steve Jobs, Jason Siegel in The End of the Tour, and Jacob Tremblay in Room. And the winner is Jacob Tremblay in Room. And this is an interesting win. Unlike all of the other actors in this category who are playing variations on the great man. Um, Jacob Tremblay's performance in Room is really like an exercise in powerlessness. He comes, he's a very weak character as a five-year-old who's never seen the outside world and is confined to a single room with his mom, who's played by Brie Larson. Uh, the film really brings you into his subjectivity and his 
interiority and you're really in tune with what he's seeing and experiencing for the very first time. It's a very powerful performance and you don't really realize how powerful it is until the second half of the film where this character is introduced to the world for the first time and he's experiencing everything like sunlight and hospitals and a room of his own and other people. And you really get the sense that this performance itself is guiding you and your emotions are very under the control of this very young actor. And you start to realize that, you know, it's this performance as much as it is his interaction with Brie Larson and or the directing and the writing that is really carrying you on this emotional journey. And I think regardless of what you think of the film or what you think of the subject matter, the power of uh, Jacob Tremblay's performance really carries throughout. It's the, I would say, the steadiest element. And you're able to really um, experiencing, experience the highs and lows in the way that he experiences it, his character in the film. Um, and I think that it's interesting that a, a child actor can give a performance like this because it's almost the kind of performance that that is so perfectly suited to, I think, the cliches or what we usually think of a child actor bringing to a performance, which is kind of a, a precociousness that a lot of people feel is off-putting. There's that kind of axiom that you never work with animals or children. But I think that the... Um, sort of the wide-eyed innocence and a lot of the, some of the preternatural abilities of child actors, the fact that they are sort of like miniature adults is, is oftentimes very off-putting in a film that is otherwise populated by what we would consider normal performances. But here in this storyline, in the character of Jack, someone who is living in a fantasy world for, for so long and needs to deconstruct and then reconstruct his knowledge and his familiarity with his surroundings and, and, and the people around him, actually this kind of, this kind of child actorness really lends, lends itself to, to this storyline. And I think it makes this performance more naturalistic in a way that in another film, a performance of this kind, I think would be off-putting. So it's a really remarkable performance, not least of which because it's given by an actor who is, is so young and also just the the story material is so it, it could be so dark but Tremblay brings such a lightness and a sort of a light touch and an innocence to his discovery um that it really uh, I think it holds the film uh together for me and it's a, definitely a highlight of the film congratulations to Jacob Tremblay on your BP award and thank you for having me thank you Kristen okay here's Aaron Newworth. hello hi thank you thank you Thank you. Please, please sit down. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm here to present the award for best foreign film. And we have uh, a number of nominees here that are all uh, quite well worth it. We have The Assassin, Mustang, Phoenix, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, and Son of Saul. And the winner is... Phoenix from director Christian Petzold. This is a good film to check out, uh, Phoenix. It is available on Netflix for those that do have Netflix, um, uh, which, and it's only about 90 minutes, so much like Ida last year, there's really not much time to take to spend on you know one of the more acclaimed foreign films of the year. That said, I was a huge fan of Son of Saul, and I just like to think that not enough people saw Son of Saul to be able to vote on it, but uh, regardless, lots of good entries this year. Phoenix is certainly one of them, so congratulations. Thanks, Aaron, I guess. Now, the real star of the evening, friend of the show... Jason Eakin. Thank you, Tyler and David, for this most prestigious honor of introducing this most prestigious award at this most prestigious event. I am Jason Eakin, here to present Best Actress in a Motion Picture. The nominees for this year's BBR. Kate Blanchett, Carol. Brie Larson, Room. Rooney Mara, Carol. Saoirse Ronan, Brooklyn. Charlize Theron, Mad Max, Fury Road. 
And the winner of the 2015 most prestigious BP is Brie Larson for Room. Um, you know, Brie Larson has been on my radar since uh, 2010's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Um, that's the first time I saw her, and since then she's had a, a very understated career. She, she takes a lot of supporting roles. I know she was uh, in the United States of Terra, unseen by me. My apologies, Ms. Larson. I didn't know how much of a most prestigious show that was, uh, so I haven't gotten around to it. Nonetheless, uh, she's been in, in supporting roles in films like Don John, The Gambler, and even 2015's Trainwreck. Um, and in each of those roles, it's, she, she plays characters who could almost be forgotten if she weren't so uh, natural. And that naturalism, I think, is why she's so good as Ma in Room. Um, you know, it's a performance that is low on histrionics, uh, of the sort that usually indicate that she's playing a big, important, quote-unquote, role. Um, you know, instead, she has, a, she has a role in which she has to focus on another character. So even though her focus is always on her son, we still get to see so much of who, uh, of who she is, what she's about, uh, as she creates this normal, repeatable daily pattern for her son. Um, and often, I, I feel like seeing a lot of young actresses play mothers, uh, sometimes it doesn't work. It feels unreal. Uh, sometimes the actresses aren't able to really put themselves in the mindset of having their life be very much about another person, another person they have to take care of. And you kind of see the seams of a performance, but not so uh, in, in this case. Um, Everything about that relationship, it just feels lived in. It feels, you feel that, that repetition, that daily routine over and over and over. Um, and even though the movie is from mostly the, the young boy's perspective, you, you still get a sense of, of in this one room, you get a sense of an entire world that they have created, that she has fashioned for her son. Um, and then the movie changes, and it is the second half of the film, I think, where my appreciation for the performance really deepens. Um, you know, instead of this, so, spoiler alert, she, they escape, and instead of these waves of joy and relief, the movie gives you really only a couple of moments of that. Uh, and then the character is hit with confusion, and anger and bitterness. And she's gone from just being this, this mother of a boy in essentially what is the entire world to being split between being a mother and being going right back to being the teenage daughter who has her own issues with her mother. Um, so you see her trying to help her son cope as well as fighting with her own mother. And I think not unlike the character of Riley in 2015's uh, Pixar movie Inside Out, uh, Larson's ma finds that nearly everything that she's used to define herself by necessity has to be torn down. She can't be the person she was in room. And even though she's free from it, she faces the daunting task of, of constructing this adult self completely from scratch. Because when everything in your past or so much of the past leads you directly back to a very painful time in your life, it's hard to use that as a foundation for your new identity and anything to really hold on to. And of course, Larson, not surprisingly, underplays this entire journey. Um, you know, where a lot of people are tempted to really ratchet up the emotion and the volume of a performance, she shows the confidence and understanding of this character to just exist. She communicates so much through looks, so much through just this sort of reflective posture that she adopts. Um, and it's, it's compelling, it's real, and it feels authentic. I am pleased to accept this award for Brie Larson. Thanks, Jason. We love you. And now to present the award for Best Director, please welcome via satellite a much better Aaron, Aaron Pinkston. It's not always easy to see what makes a great director, but there is no doubt that this year's nominees showcase the many talents 
that a great director must have. From fully realizing a film from script to screen to nailing all of the intricate details that help us get lost in a film, the five filmmakers nominated tonight achieved these vital tasks with incredibly diverse films. When a film is more than the sum of its parts, you know a great director is behind it. These five films meet that criteria completely. The nominees are Todd Haynes, Carol, Ho Xiao Shen, The Assassin, Tom McCarthy, Spotlight, George Miller, Mad Max, Fury Road, and Quentin Tarantino, The Hateful Eight. And the winner is George Miller for Mad Max, Fury Road. I will gladly accept this award on Mr. Miller's behalf, and because I assume the shipping charges to Australia are incredibly expensive, I think I'll just keep this for myself. It's sort of strange to think of a 70-year-old filmmaker who has made films for nearly 40 years to have a breakout, but that's sort of what George Miller did with Mad Max Fury Road. True cinephiles, of course, know and love his original Mad Max films and realize that he is the director behind the Babe and Happy Feet series, but Fury Road was so surprising and so unique that it feels like it's coming from a filmmaker you're discovering for the first time. The work is a clear, singular vision of absolute mayhem. The cinematography, the editing, the costuming, the score, the character design, the big ideas all come together so perfectly that I can't imagine any other filmmaker ever making this film in as perfect a way as George Miller has done. And for that, he is a very well-deserved recipient of this year's BP in Best Directing. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. And now, for the moment you've all been waiting for, Best Picture. And the nominees are... Am I reading the nominees? Sure. We, we can go back and forth. Okay. Um, Carol. The Hateful Eight. Mad Max Fury Road. Room. Spotlight. And the winner of Best Picture for 2015 is... Do you want to say it at the same time? No, you should say it. Should okay, say. okay, 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 okay. Carol. Pretty exciting. That's very exciting. I'm right. holding for applause. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Waiting for um, Todd Haynes and uh, Harvey to make their way up here. <laughs> oh, they're taking their sweet time, so it, let's just vamp a little bit here. <laughs> um, so yeah, Carol, uh, now I, I did not like this movie as much as, as much as you did, but it is still a movie, I'll say this, even though, even though I didn't love it as much as some people, it has, it has haunted me a little bit. Like, it's still in my head. Um, not merely the story that's being told and the way it's being told, which is very, I, I view it as a very slight, but in a good way, a very slight, a very subtle film. Um, there are melodramatic elements to it, but they're not played that way. Um, it feels... I think in terms of, of words like haunting, words like ghosts, like just because it just seems like these characters are just sort of passing through my mind, uh, just sort of whispering things to me. I know it sounds very strange, but the, the way it looks, the music, the performances, it just seems so, um, I don't know, I can't even put my finger on it. It is a, it is a film that has just stuck with me in a very primal way. It, it's primal uh, you say primal I think the word I would go with is timeless sure in that it feels and normally you know I'm not going to say it feels antiquated because that's a pejorative right but it feels like an antique in the sense that its craft is so so perfect so perfectly considered and so competent uh, that it's clear to me that it's going to st- stand the test of time and it also kind of feels like it might have already if we right. if, the, if these weren't actors that we knew were working today yeah um you could say this is a you know a, a undiscovered movie from the late 1950s or something yeah. in many ways it does have that feeling um in that it's it's classical it's not um it's not trying to upend convention um but it still feels vital and of the moment mm-hmm. in the way that you know people will pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a piece of furniture that was yeah. made uh 150 years ago because 
um, nothing in that time has been made better. Yeah. And that's sort of how, how Carol feels to me that it's a, 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 it's, it's so, it's so, it's so perfect and so perfectly conceived and, and tactile, uh, in its finished product that it's going to be as well thought of, uh, in a century as it is now. And, you know, I think one of the things that I like about it, and I think this is just something I like about Todd Haynes in general, is that he makes movies about, um, it seems somehow reductive to say, like, seemingly hot-button issues. You know, this is a lesbian love story, and it, right. it, and the characters are living in a time when that is not a, an ex, you know seen as an acceptable thing. Um, and so the film definitely has that, but it does not have the sense of self-importance that can come with that. This is a story about these characters and mm-hmm. that's what's important. They don't know that they're in the midst of a movie that could spark debate when it comes out or, or discussion right. when it comes out. They only know that they're in love with each other. They're trying to figure that out. They're trying to manage their relationship their, uh, with each other, their relationship with, with other people. They're trying to figure out their own feelings and how they're going to manifest themselves. So the film to me seems like something of an anomaly because it is a film for grownups Um it is a film that in many ways is very small. We're not dealing with, with vast global uh, situations here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a war movie or anything like this. It's just... No it's zombies. No zombies. Not a zombie in sight. Well, hang on now. No, you're well, right. Think about you're it. Right. Okay. Think about it. Yeah, okay, hang on. Uh, but just the... It is... It's, it's very small in its scope. One, would, one could say domestic. Um... But at no point does it feel like, you know, it's everything about it, uh, not everything about it, everybody knew it was going to be submitted for major awards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but I don't think that permeates the film, as opposed to a film like, for example, which I haven't seen, so I don't know, but based <laughs> on what people have said, including you, The Danish Girl, uh-huh. where it actually, because it's going to be submitted for awards, it actually winds up sidestepping what could be seen as controversial about the hot button issue that it's tackling so that uh, it's not going to make anybody uncomfortable, but it's still going to look as though it's doing something very important. Um, uh, that's a lot of awards movies. Yeah, it's, gonna... it was like the imitation game from, from yes. last year. Yes, but we're here not uh, to bury the Danish girl, but to... Right. Uh, but celebrate. to forget about it completely. <laughs> yeah, to, to um, celebrate Carol. So, uh, Carol, congrats on your BP. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, that was the BP show. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, this is our yeah. third one of these, and it is uh, one of my favorite things that we do all year. Yeah, thanks for coming to the beautiful Restored Kodak Theater. Mm-hmm. Thanks for paying $19 for a glass of white wine yeah. or whatever. As, uh, you are wa- as you are walking out, don't forget there will be uh, ushers holding big baskets of Kodak film. Don't forget to grab your roll on your way out uh, so that we can, in the spirit of Carol, that we are uh, uh, embracing antiquated ideas right. like film. Um, yes, cash only. <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you, everybody. Have a good night. <laughs>